my belief is that there's no such thing as luck. You make your own luck. It's being at that trade show. It's meeting that buyer. It's getting them to come to your booth. It's getting them to try your product and telling them why this product should be on American Airlines. It's why this product should be in your retail store, why your consumer is going to buy it, and why everyone loves cookie dough. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Todd Goldstein, entrepreneur, investor, and advocate for intellectual property rights. Back in 2008, Todd co-founded Launch House with the mission to invest, develop, and foster promising idea stage companies in Northeast Ohio through community, education, co-working, and investment. And through Launch House, Todd has helped grow a diverse portfolio of 65 companies who've collectively raised more than $30 million in follow-on funding. Todd's most recent endeavor, though, amongst his many as a serial founder, and also the one which we will spend most of our conversation on today, is Wodo, which is a company where he serves as CEO and that he founded back in 2019 in the aftermath of discovering his three boys were diagnosed with severe gluten intolerance. The reality is that 32 million Americans suffer from food allergies, of which 5.6 million are children, a number which has grown drastically over the past few decades. At first, Todd thought he and his family's cookie dough eating days were over, but he quickly realized that he was intolerant of that too and took it upon himself to create a snack-happy, natural cookie dough that could satisfy his family's sweet tooth without wrecking havoc on their bellies. Two years and many dozens of recipes later, Wodo was born. And today is a growing brand which Todd and his team have grown to boast distribution in brands like American Airlines and participation in Mondelez's Snack Futures program, all while creating a gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, plant-based, kosher, non-GMO vegan natural product. I really enjoyed learning about Todd's journey here, his passion for building this out in Cleveland, and the momentum of Wodo going forward. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Todd Goldstein as well after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So I would love to start with your passion for entrepreneurship. Uh, before we we just turned the mic on a, a second ago, we were going over you know how long it is that you've been in this space from from all sides of of the coin from 
launch house to investing in companies to building your own. So with that, can you just take us through how it is you came to find yourself drawn to this world? That, that is a great question. Um, so <laughs> I'm originally from Cleveland and I grew up in a family that was very entrepreneurial. My grandfather had owned a restaurant in Cleveland that was actually started by my great-grandfather in the 20s. Entrepreneurship, I would say, runs in our blood. From the age of five, I remember going down to my grandfather's restaurant with my parents um, when I was off of school or on the weekends. And whether it was helping the baker or putting silver on the table, like, you know, I felt like empowered as a five year old and then a seven year old to be able to make a difference, even if it was making bread or putting silver on the table. But my grandfather once told me that. You, you ultimately want to work for yourself. Like you want to control your own destination. And that's something I've kind of lived by almost my whole career. I didn't come right out of college and become an entrepreneur day one. But I, as I said, I grew up in Cleveland and went to school on the East Coast. I ultimately came back. I was actually having lunch with my grandfather in it was November of 2003, and he said to me, he goes, where are you going to go? And I said, well, I, you know, I may not come back to Cleveland. And he said, you know, none of my friends' grandkids come back. You know, I hope that you'd come back and maybe come back to make a difference. And, you know, that always really kind of stuck with me because, you know, here I was thinking, you know, maybe I would leave. Maybe I'd go to New York or Chicago, like I'm all of my friends. But ultimately, I did decide to come back. I came back, I got a job, and then shortly thereafter, I went to work for a medical technology startup company, and at that point forward, really kind of fell in love with the entrepreneurial space. At what point did that laden work-for-yourself entrepreneurial spirit become activated? What was the point at which you decided to, to become your own boss? So... I actually thought it was going to be right out of college. So I graduated. I came home. Um, I actually graduated in November of 2003. I moved home. I thought, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm not sure I knew what that meant. I knew I wanted to go into real estate because I had read a bunch of books about buying real estate and how it was a good long-term investment. And then I got home and realized I had no money and I couldn't pay my car insurance. So at that point, I went and got a job for a, a local company and... I got a paycheck. And then from that, I actually bought my first piece of real estate. That So I kind of jumped into the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial activity, entrepreneurial spirit, but I was still working full-time because you couldn't, I realized you couldn't get a loan without a job. So it was like you had to have a job to start to become an entrepreneur. And a lot of times you hear entrepreneurs start, you know, they have a second job and it becomes a full-time job. But from there... I've realized that I could do real estate on the side while keeping my full-time job during the day. And then I got offered a job with a company called Franklin and Seidelman. And it was a medical technology company that was changing the way radiologists read scans by doing uh, specialty radiology here in the States using all the images were sent via the internet. So radiologists could actually sit in their home and they could specialize in a different part of the body. And so I went to go work for this company in 2005, and I just fell in love. I mean, the idea of being part of a company that was growing really quickly, being, you know, I was you know, within the first 10 employees at the company. And I really just saw how quickly with the right idea, capital, and team, a business could grow. Mm. And so at that point, I was like, okay, I am hooked on entrepreneurship. I'm hooked on 
Like, you know, yes, I've got this real estate on the side, but that didn't feel like entrepreneurship, right? That felt like, you know, something I felt good about doing was making some money, you know, was building something for myself. But I felt like entrepreneurship was so much, so much bigger. But I wasn't sure what my next step was at that point. So from there, having awakened that energy from within, how did you figure out what to work on next? So I started reading a lot of different publications about things that are happening in out in so out in the valley in New York and Chicago. You know, really looking at how things had fundamentally changed from when I graduated high school, where if you want to build a technology company, it costs several million dollars. Where by 2005, ultimately when I started Launch House, you could literally start a technology company in your dorm room. And, you can, and so the, the barrier to becoming an entrepreneur and starting a business had come way down because the cost of, of building that minimal viable product or that prototype became viable with, with you know, a few thousand dollars and access to a customer. And at that point, I, not only did I start did a lot of reading and understanding what was happening in other parts of the country, I also thought about maybe I should get up and move to somewhere where there's a much more vibrant culture for entrepreneurship, because if you think about Cleveland, Cleveland was not a hotbed for entrepreneurship or innovation, right? It really was that at the turn of the last century when we were one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And somewhere along the way, we kind of had, I felt the city kind of lost their way. And so it was a crucial point where I said, you know, either I'm going to get up and move to a vibrant city where it's very entrepreneurial and, you know, there's access to capital, access to people that want to build things. Or I'm going to try and do that here. And that's really when I met my co-founder in Launch House. And we said, you know something? You've got ac- there is still access to capital here. There's all the resources you have in major cities. You have you know, access to mentorship. You have access to public transportation. So, so one of the things that we realized as we were going through this process of like, is there really an opportunity to try and build a really strong ecosystem from ground up as a 25-year-old. Because what I saw consistently in every other city across the country is the entrepreneurial community wasn't led by the guys with gray hair, right? It was led by 20-somethings that didn't take no easily, that were going to bang down the door, and were, were really just willing to take risks. Because the older you get, the less risk you're willing to take. And so for us, we said to ourselves, you know, we're, we're 25. We, we have a small amount of capital my partner and I had made through, other, through our other business ventures. We know there's Case Western Reserve University. That was another key factor we found in all the other cities that thriving entrepreneurial cultures. They had really strong universities supporting that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ecosystem. And you had a low cost of living, right? It's really tough to start a company in San Francisco where your rent alone is three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a month, where in Cleveland it could be $500 a month. And so we thought by bringing all those pieces together and, and, and then just putting it out there that we're not the end all be all. We're going to create a community, a safe space where you can come. We're going to bring together mentors, access to capital, resources for entrepreneurs, but you can feel comfortable, come pitch your idea. People aren't going to tell you it's stupid. People aren't going to knock you down and knock you down. People are going to give you real advice, real mentorship because people want to see you succeed. And really, that was the underpinning of why we started Launch House. It was really, you know, we started above Tracy's Pizza in University Heights. The idea was, come, pitch your idea, get real feedback, maybe get some access to capital, but 
if you're meant to be an entrepreneur, mentors, other advisors are going to help you along that path. You may pitch your idea and realize you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You should go get a job. But realize that now, not after you've spent several hundred thousand dollars of your friends, family, and investors' money. And so if you think about it, 2007, there's not a safe space like that in Northeastern Ohio. And that's what we, that was our idea behind the early days behind creating Launch House. It ultimately started, we started by doing these pitch nights where first pitch night, we had maybe seven or 10 people show up. You know, within 12 months, we had 300 people showing up because people really just wanted that outlet to, to explore their entrepreneurial self and see, yes, I have it in me. I have an idea. I, I've, I have done my customer development. I can build something and someone will buy it. Or no, I don't have anything. I might as well not waste my time and money and let me keep doing my job and have fun on the side. Yeah. No, Launch House is a, is a special place. And I think it had filled that, that void that people were in search of at the time. When we last met up at Launch House, actually, I, I kind of got an, an abridged version of, of the Wodo story. And so I've been you know, looking forward to holding the space for you to share the full unfettered version of that. But I'd love to understand as, as Launch House evolves and you get involved in, in more entrepreneurial endeavors, how you, you kind of managed and balanced uh, it, as you explored those supporting founders versus then going back to, to starting something your, yourself. As Launch House started to grow and evolve, I mean, if you think about the early days of Launch House, it was really about supporting entrepreneurship. And then it was, you know, at one point we were supporting high school entrepreneurs, adult entrepreneurs. We were doing accelerator programs. We were doing free office hours. You know, it was kind of unknown what Launch House was, except the place that anybody could come to day or night and, you know, get real advice, access to capital to start and grow your business. And for myself, it wasn't clear to me exactly how we were going to make money. As we grew from, you know, above Tracy's Pizza to the city of Cleveland, then ultimately Shaker, and then in the end, our home today in Highland Heights. You know, for the first, I don't know, seven years or seven plus years, it was really about community, 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 being that space. And then as opportunities would come up, always in the back of my mind, I would look and say, okay, is this an opportunity where I can add more value? Or is there an idea I have that I can push into the marketplace? Or is there an idea I can give to an entrepreneur and they can take and run with it? But ultimately, you know, I think we grew up as an organization as I grew up, right? So you're 25 starting something is a lot different than when you're you know, 35 and then 40. So, and the entrepreneurs are supporting change as well, right? So if you're 25 and you're supporting a bunch of young 25-year-olds, it's not... You know, especially in Cleveland, where it's tougher to be younger than it is to be older. I really looked at it as like, you know, let's help the, let's really start to go from focusing on everyone to focusing on the entrepreneurs that have the best chance of success. And then ultimately, I realized that, you know, Cleveland is, you know, follow on funding was becoming that much tougher. So I, I, I kind of going into like 2014. You know, we really kind of looked at it and said, you know, why don't we just become that agnostic place where entrepreneurs can just come to? And it's not going to be about the capital we have because one of the things we saw is that people would come all over the country to get capital from Launch House and the program was over, they'd get up and leave because the, the access to follow-on funding wasn't here. And so at that point, you're like, okay, well, I'd spend all this time and effort to continue to build this ecosystem, but our best companies are now in Boston. They're now in California. They're now in Denver. 
So it really kind of, I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall. You know, we're really going to be a space where you come to, but you have to pay to be here. And at that time, I started thinking about my own life and about, okay, I'm involved in other ventures as well, and I have to make money. And so I need to focus on kind of split my timing between Launch House and some of those other opportunities. And in those other opportunities, had you been thinking about what Wodo would become? Where, what, what is the this origin story, if you will, for, for Wodo? Yeah, so I mean, you know, a lot of it was about timing. So as Launch House grew, different opportunities would present themselves where I got, you know, whether it was co-founded or became part of other businesses that, that we were able to build upon, you know, where we saw market opportunity, right? And so, you know, Launch House was always kind of operating and then there'd be other business opportunities where it's like, okay, well, this makes sense. And this makes sense because I've learned this, inf- you know, I've, I've all this knowledge of all these companies we've helped at Launch House. And from that, you're like, okay, now I see a product market fit. How do you take that to the market? But it was never, most of those opportunities were really kind of more service related. They weren't truly like ground up, build, you know, a software or build a food company. But what had happened simultaneously, when I talked about earlier, my grandfather owned a restaurant. From the age of five, I'd be in the bakery, I'd be helping the baker, and then I'd go home and I'd be sick. Up until 30, every time I would eat, I was always really, really sick. And I never knew why. And then when I turned 30, I got diagnosed with severe gluten allergy. Other people, you know, celiac. And I stopped eating gluten. And my whole life changed because now I couldn't eat the things I loved. But at the same time, my stomach didn't hurt anymore. And talk about Launch House, right? We talk about how Launch House kind of opened my eyes to different opportunities. Well, now my change in my diet opened my eyes to a new opportunity. The opportunity that if I have this issue, I guarantee other people throughout the country and throughout the world have the same issue. And so we had started looking at companies, not just in the tech space or or service space or manufacturing space. We started looking specifically for better for you food companies. And so that's where I got my first exposure to understanding how do you bring a food product to market? Not at the time that I ever think that I was going to start something ground up myself. But again, when you're, as you know, right, you're around that environment, right? It's putting yourself in that environment around other entrepreneurs, other things that are happening, people from all different types of backgrounds. I would say that's probably one of the best things about from the day I started Launch House, even till today. When you walk into Launch House and you've been here today, not today, but in the last three months, you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what their background is and you don't know where something they say or something they do is going to trigger an idea you have that could turn into a business. Hmm. You know, so I get this diagnosis. We start having, we start looking at making some investments in the food space Fast forward to 2015, my first son, Henry, is born. Lucky for him, we know at a, by 18 months, he has a severe gluten allergy. So, you know, unlike an adult who I'm like, okay, I can't eat cookie dough, I can't eat a cookie, I can't eat cake, I can't eat, you know, these items. It's really tough to tell an 18-month-old, then a two-year-old, then a three-year-old, you can't eat this, you're different, right? Can you imagine that? Like being a parent, you're telling your kids know all the time while their friends are eating it. So then fast forward, my second son, Grayson, is born in 2017. Same thing, right? And we knew almost instantly. And I'm like, fuck. Like, 
two kids, dietary restrictions. This is going to be tough. And as a, and I'm a very active dad, you know, taking my kids to birthday parties, you know, now they come to the office, we're always on the go. And I recognize that cookie dough, I mean, as a kid, do you remember eating cookie dough with someone in your family? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, right. So it's, it's something that you can shut your eyes and you can remember a time in your life, whether you're 90 or you're five, of eating cookie dough with someone you love. It's, it's making cookies. It's eating that raw dough before you bake them and enjoying the finished cookie. It, it just takes you back to a time of just absolute, in my eyes, delight. It took me back to being five years old. And so I had recognized in 20, really 2018, 2019, that cookie dough is one of the fastest growing markets. Cookie, shop, cookie, cookie scoop shops are opening up in New York City where you're from. And, you know, it was just market was going at 9% a year. But it was really not geared towards people that had allergy restrictions. And it wasn't really geared towards on the go, right? You couldn't just pop in your book bag, take it to wherever you're going and eat it. It was really you needed a, a bone, a bowl, and a spoon. So I started looking around the market and said, the protein bar market's really crowded. You know, there's a lot of people doing scoopable cookie dough. What happens if you take that great product of cookie dough that everyone loves? and make it into a on-the-go indulgent snack. So that's where Wodo was really born, to create a cookie dough snack bar that was first and foremost gluten-free, and then just happened to be, because of the way we create it, dairy-free, soy-free, egg-free, non-GMO, OU kosher. And so it really would allow anyone with any allergy restriction to eat cookie dough on the go. And ultimately, your intuition about the prevalence of this problem in that it's something that so many others probably also experience. The scale of the problem is pretty pretty astonishing to me. The, the stats surrounding it, it are wild across the ubiquity of, of food allergies compared to the kind of dearth of those allergies over the last few decades, uh, as well as the ubiquity now of, of gluten intolerance. What it, What is going on in, in, in the, the history of, of the evolution of this problem over the last... 10, 20, 30 years? I would say a lot of it has to do with when, you know, think when we were kids, right? Oh, your stomach hurts, shut up and go to school, right? People didn't dig in as much, right? But but also as kids, think about the food that were that was put into our bodies, right? Like, you know, I remember, you know, just the stuff you would eat full of dyes, full of colors, full of chemicals. There wasn't this awareness about what you're putting in your body. And, and it's not that our parents... I just don't think they didn't know, right? You kind of trust the system, and especially when you have you know, a lot of families. You have two working parents who's trying to get kids fed. The easiest thing to do is give them a, a frozen meal, give them something that's prepackaged, not really dig into like what are the ingredients behind it. I think we've also, if you look at you know the way food is manufactured in Europe versus the United States, I think we've turned a little bit of a blind eye to be to what's being put into our products that we're eating. Up until recently, I think that is really swinging the other way over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. But you know, going back 20 and 30 years ago, you, know, you went from the 1950s where everything was a home-cooked meal to like you know, the, the 70s and the 80s where it's fast food, whatever you can put in your kids' bodies to get them out the door. And I think what started happening is you see you, you, the, the, the obesity rate went up, cancer rate went up, people getting sick. And I think at some point people start saying, I'm sick of feeling like this. Why am I getting sick every time I eat? 
And then you have medicine that evolves, right? So now you can test for all these different things and understand all these different issues going on with your body. And you can literally do it at home by mail. So the combination of all those things coming together, I think really shine the light on you know, different issues that people have within their body, whether it's dairy, egg, gluten, soy, nuts. And nuts is the one that people always talk about, but that's one of the smallest of the population. If you think about the overall market size of people affected or choosing a lifestyle of vegan or non-GMO, it's over 55 million people in the US today. So how do you actually get started? From soup to nuts is probably not a a useful terminology here, but <laughs> what does it look like to to create the the first consumable product? Sure. So, you know, I want to tell you it was some late nights in my own kitchen, because that's the story that everyone wants to tell. But you know, that <laughs> that's not the Lodo story. When I identified, okay, cookie dough, right? We're gonna make it better for you. It was really doing a lot of understanding of like, okay, what are the right ingredients to put in this? How, how do we want it to taste? How do we want to make it? And really working with a, 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 our manufacturer to kind of come up with the right combination. And, you know, ultimately, then it's a lot of customer development, right? So going back to Launch House and what I learned really helping other entrepreneurs, you have to worry about who's going to buy your product, right? If you don't have a customer, you don't have a product. It's, it's literally that simple. I mean, a lot of people, even today, you know, I have this great idea. Will someone pay for it? It's a great idea. Will someone pay for it? And the people will go a long way without ever having a customer. So the first thing we did was we started making prototypes. And we had lots of people try it. And at some point after 19 iterations, we put a marker in the ground and said, hey, well, this is the product we're going to go to market with. And this was late fall of 2019. You know, we, we, and, and we launched, right? And I would say the idea was cookie dough snack bar, better for you, gluten free, plant based, dairy free, soy free, egg free. And at that time, it's still today, there were no other true cookie dough bars on the market and no other shelf stable cookie dough bars. So we get the product going and we get on Amazon, we get in Heinen's. So you want to hear the good and bad about Amazon? Both, please. Sure. So the good is you can sell product anywhere in the country very quickly. The bad, you can see the reviews very quickly. So typically, if you go back 15, 20 years, you make a product, you get into retail, 12 months later, you know if your product's selling or not, and you know you know there's a future or not. With well, Amazon, you know almost instantly. We, we do a soft launch, Q4 of, 29, Q4 of 2019. I started looking at reviews in February of 2020. And what started as four and five star reviews were turning into two and one star reviews. And I saw at the retailer we were in, Heinen's, our first launch partner here locally, that our sales were dwindling. And I said, we have a problem. And then I started eating the bars myself, right? Not that I wasn't eating them before, but again, when you're living it, living it every day, sometimes you're not eating it every single day. And then I said to myself, this is not the right product. The reviews are saying it's not the right product. My taste buds are saying it's not the right product. The market's saying it's not the right product. And right at this point, this is the first week of March of 2020. So I think everyone knows what's about to hit, right? We had just packed up all of our product to go to Expo West, the largest food trade show in the country, to introduce our product to the world. And it 
exactly at that point, Expo West got canceled and the whole world shuts down. For most entrepreneurs, you're like, oh, fuck, we're out of business. For Wodo, that was the best thing that ever happened to us. Why was that? What transpired from there? At that point, I spent the, we, we sold off all the remaining inventory we had. We went back into the kitchen. We looked at all the reviews. And I went back to, why did I start Wodo? So the initial product we made, we were trying to walk that line of being you know, healthy, the right calories, the right protein, you know, trying to be everything to everyone, not what we sought out to be, which is just a cookie dough snack bar that's gluten-free and better for you. We went back into the kitchen and we just redid all the recipes. We spent the time during COVID to look at our manufacturing capabilities. Originally, we were manufacturing in California. We moved our manufacturing to Ohio. I said, I want to be able to drive to my manufacturer every time I'm going to produce. I want to be able to know that when my product's finished, it can go to a warehouse nearby where I can pick it up, I can distribute from. I want to be able to feel it, touch it, be there. You know, and ultimately, the final straw that made us make the decision was margin. California, we were at like a 3 to 5% gross margin. Ohio, Northeast Ohio, the day we started production there, 40% gross margin. Today, we're significantly higher. Wow. And so a combination of those factors of you know, COVID allowing us to pause and say, what are we doing? Why did I create this product if my kids won't even need it? And we need to have a viable business. A lot of times entrepreneurs, and you know, even though I mentored and coached so many entrepreneurs and invested in so many different entrepreneurs and opportunities that some successful, some not, you still make mistakes. You can't always see you know, what's around the next corner. And even though you've seen it before, no business, no two businesses are ever the same. And so ultimately, we did our first, I, I call it our first real production run in, I think it was October 23rd of 2020. So not the best time to be launching a product in the market. That, that return to why is, uh, is, is always quite powerful, I, I think. One, one of the things, if, if you'll uh, take us on a little detour here as part of this journey, though, that, that I've noticed is that you are one of the more prolific marketers I've seen with just a consistency of presence across social media and kind of embodying this whole philosophy of building in public, documenting the journey along the way and, and being transparent and vulnerable about what it is actually like to run and operate and grow this business in the context of your family and your life as things are going well, as things are not going well. Why have you opted for this public approach to building? I, I think it, for me, it was just really important for people to see the journey because a lot of times you don't hear about the journey until after the fact, until the company makes it and sells for some ridiculous amount of money. And, and I believe strongly that it is really tough to build a business. And I think that a lot of people out there want to be entrepreneurs or you know, maybe they're closet entrepreneurs, right? So they work during the day and they really want to be entrepreneurs. And so, you know, for me, it was giving, you know, really giving people a firsthand look on, look at what does it take without knowing what the end is going to be, right? So it'd be easy for someone, for me, you know, three to five years from now to sell the company, then come back and tell the whole story and people to pat me on the back and be like, oh my God, what a huge success, right? And, and people wouldn't really know what it took. Or in five years, I come back and 
God forbid, Wodo doesn't make it, right? And it's like, oh, well, they're just another failure, right? And for me, it was really about, I want people to see, you know, what it's like to be a dad, to be a husband, and to build a business at the same time. Because there are good days, there are bad days, there's things to be proud of, there's things not to be proud of. And I think that people should know that because I think a lot of people out there today, especially when you're looking at potentially going into a down economy where entrepreneurship typically rises, they should understand and know what they're getting themselves into because it is a big capital investment. No matter what type of business you start, you're making some personal sacrifice, whether it's financially or with your family, with your time. And the last thing you want to do, I mean, how many stories do you hear about people starting a business and losing their life savings or ending up in a divorce situation? And I felt for me, just putting it out there and showing people, you know, what it takes, the good and the bad, maybe could help someone else if they're thinking about starting the same journey. What have been some of the unforeseen consequences of of taking this public approach? Sometimes sharing things you wouldn't typically share. You know, there's been you know, some days where I've felt every emotion in a single day where you, you really don't want to talk about it. And then you kind of put it out there and, you know, people reach out to you and it forces you to share it. Some of the stuff maybe you wouldn't typically share. And you're like, maybe I shouldn't have put that post out there because, you know, it really was an uncomfortable day of, you know, thinking you're about to, you know, secure a really large account to then find out you're not going to, then to find out you just secured American Airlines, right? So it's it's just all those things that, happen in a single day that typically don't happen in a single year for people that are working at a typical job. <laughs> and so it's, you know, you put it out there and you're like, Oh fuck, I just put that out there to everyone in the world to see. And then it's like, you know, then people want to know why and you're like, Oh, I really don't want to share why, but then you kind of feel like you have to because you've put it out there and people want to know. So you, you've captured this and incorporated, you know, the customer feedback back to the drawing board Reevaluated the recipe, created something that was an iteration of of where it had come before, and perhaps marking you know uh, a lower point in in the journey so far. You know, you mentioned American Airlines. I know Whole Foods has been part of the journey. What is it like from there to to break into retailers at at that kind of scale? What does the process look like, and how how is it that you begin to approach that? So it's really interesting. So we actually were in Whole Foods initially with our original formula, but we're not in Whole Foods today. So you think think about it. We got into Whole Foods with a product that wasn't good. And then we launched, in my opinion, a far superior product, but aren't in Whole Foods with it because of one of our ingredients. So the journey has been absolutely insane <laughs> in the sense that, you know, we do a lot of trade shows, right? So early on, I was trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to get products into consumers' hands? Well, you got to get into a place where they buy it, right? Well, you just don't knock on the, the local Heinen's door and they let you in, right? It's a whole review process that happens at the corporate level, unless it's a mom and pop store. And so you, I recognized early on that you had to go to trade shows. And so my bet was I was going to go all in on trade shows. My big mantra is we go where the buyers go. And you know where the buyers go? They go to trade shows. Do you want to know why? Because buyers get a thousand emails a day and 
they're never going to read my email because they have a thousand other, they have 999 other emails that they have to deal with before they're ever going to see mine. By the time they see mine, their day is over. They're on to the next day of a new thousand emails. And so we made a commitment that we're going to go to trade shows and that's where the buyers are. And it's a lot of triable. Like I have three kids at home. That means my wife is home with my three kids. It's, it's traveling. You know, I've, I've been on the road four out of the last five weeks and I get back on the road Sunday. But it has worked. So where did I meet American Airlines? At a trade show. Where did I meet Giant Eagle? At a trade show. Ultimately, the buyers are going to trade shows because they want to go where they know the innovation is. They want to know, go where they can find products. And for us, we recognized that early on. And we, we made that part of our strategy. And, and it's, a, it's an expensive part of the strategy, right? So you, because you've got to travel. You've got to set up a booth. It's time-consuming. You've got to be on your feet. You've got to always be happy. And it's not just about going to that trade show, right? You have to activate that trade show. Have you ever been to a trade show before? Sure, yeah. Okay, so you know people that sit behind the table. They don't talk to anyone. People walk by their booth. That is not us. <laughs> I'm in front of that booth. I'm chasing people down. I'm looking at badges. I'm giving people bars. And now I'm giving them people fresh baked cookies. You know, my belief is that there's no such thing as luck. You make your own luck. It's being at that trade show. It's meeting that buyer. It's getting them to come to your booth. It's getting them to try your product and tell them why this product should be on American Airlines. It's why this product should be in your retail store, why your consumer is going to buy it, and why everyone loves cookie dough. So in the you know massive growth and proliferation of this better for you category that that was in its infancy when you were starting and and kind of followed in the wake of the of the the growth and recognition of the the, the food allergies that that we have as a society how is it that you set wodo apart today from other plant-based and allergen-friendly snack options that have that have hit the market how do you communicate that uniqueness to customers particularly at, at a place like a trade show where you know they they're probably getting a lot of you know different samples and and uh, inundated with you know w- whatever people are are coming up with today. So first and foremost, our trade show booth is bright pink. <laughs> so if you've ever seen our, our I know you've seen our chocolate chip cookie packaging, it's bright pink. Our trade show is bright pink, right? So you've got me in front of a trade show booth, me and other people on my team, and it is bright pink. So you look down that trade show alley and we pop you're you're gonna see us right you're not gonna miss us so that's you know first and foremost it's 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 being there where people can see us right it's 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 finding a way to showcase ourselves and then it's just cookie dough right who doesn't love cookie dough we're not a protein (laughs) bar we're not a candy bar we're not a scoopable we're a cookie dough snack bar that's what we are at our foundation we're cookie dough in a bar that you can eat you know for dessert as a snack, in your kid's lunch, with your grandma, with your, with your five-year-old kids, with anyone. And you can enjoy it on the go, right? So that is our simplest selling point. We're a cookie dough snack bar. We now have now introduced a ready-to-bake cookie dough. So now you can eat it on the go or you can pull it from the fridge, throw it in the oven, and bake cookies. So with, with that and the, the evolution of the product, where as a company is, is Wodo today? And as you turn the, 
the aperture towards the future, you know, what is in store for, for Wodo and, and what has you most excited over the next, call it year, and then beyond? So today we're about 2,500 retail locations across the U.S. Um, we're currently on American Airlines all first class baskets. We just entered the K-12 through space. So uh, last July, we actually went to the SNA show, which is the School Nutrition Association show. Again, back to trade shows, right? Because I was recognizing my kids and all their friends were eating Wodo, and I was like, why are we not in schools, right? And then you go to a trade show and you learn all the qualifications to get into schools. And it just so happens when you run through the school calculator to see if you qualify, the first bar you run through, you get rejected. And you're at the trade show, you're in front of a school, they tell you about this calculator to see if you can go to their school, you get rejected. You're like, I just spent all this money to come here, I'm not going to be able to go into the school space. 30 minutes later, when I have some free time, I start running through the rest of our flavors. And I realized at the time, four out of our six flavors were approved. So it's really, really difficult to get your product into schools. Fortunately for us, and I didn't do this on purpose, that our number one ingredient is a whole grain oat. And so to be a snack and sold in schools, guess what your number one ingredient has to be? Whole grain oats. <laughs> you got it. You know, sometimes a little, you know, again, you make your own luck. And so in this case, you know, we got lucky by using the right ingredient, but now recognize that we could sell in the schools. So today we're in, two, we're in 40 school districts across the country, including two of the largest, being Houston Public and Orange County in Orlando. Um, servicing over over a half million students. So as I look forward to the rest of 23 and 24, so we're going to continue to expand in the airline market. We're going to continue to expand to the K-12 schools across the country because why should kids eat things that don't taste good? Every kid should be able to have cookie dough for lunch or breakfast in schools, right on their menu. We're going to continue to grow into retail. So you know, identifying retailers that align with our mission and our goals we were also recently selected to be in the Mondelez Collabs program. We're one of nine companies, and we're three weeks into that program, which has been just a tremendous help in, in helping our business, You know, helping us solve challenges, see how to continue to grow our business with the best practices of the company that owns Perfect Bar and Oreo, and, and really just continue to innovate around the products that work. And that's really you know, our newest innovation, which is our ready-to-bake ready cookie dough and our new flavor, our oatmeal cookie dough that we just launched uh, in March. When you think about that kind of growth, how is it that you have navigated the challenges of scaling to serve a much larger number of consumers while trying to maintain the, the quality and the integrity of, of the product over time? So one of the key things I've learned in the two and a half years since we truly launched in the market is that the growth doesn't happen overnight. So you go to a trade show, you meet a buyer. You're not in, right? It's the follow-up, right? And I, 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 I know you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So just because you see the growth and you start talking with the buyer, it doesn't mean you're in. There's still a six, nine, 12, or two-year process to get your product on the shelf. So a lot of going to trade shows is the brand, just, just like you know, putting myself out there on social media telling our story, going to the trade shows, meeting the buyers, meeting people in the industry, setting the stage for maybe not today, but maybe for 2025. And so 
by giving ourselves the time, it allows us also to then plan all of our manufacturing capacity to make sure as we grow, we can meet that demand with the same quality and product we started with two and a half years ago. So it's really not about just, yes, I mean, we grew over 350% year over year, but we know to continue to grow, it's not just going to be year over year growth. It's going to be year over year growth for three, five, seven, ten years to come. In parallel to trade shows, what are the the marketing strategies that you have, have found to be most successful? It's product in people's mouths. We've got to get people to try mm-hmm. it. So we recently did a survey. The number one reason why people buy our product is taste. Number four is because of the health benefits. So we know people have to try it. Just three weeks ago, there was an event in Chicken Falls called Blossom Time. 100,000 visitors. We gave away 14,000 bars. Wow. So ultimately, as we grow, it's developing a field marketing program that as we enter a market, it's two-pronged approach. Product in people's hands and people, if you can't get to their hands, they've got to see it. So whether that's geofencing the retailer they're going into, it's social media ads, it's TikTok, it's a multi-layered marketing approach for people seeing and trying the product because we know if people try it, they're going to buy it. What have you learned about building a brand, you know, separate from a, a product that people can can interact with, you know, literally eat? What is it that you've taken away from the the concept of a brand at large? It's really tough. It really gives you an appreciation for brands like Oreo or Smuckers because brands don't get built over years, they get built over decades. And it's a lot of that. It's a lot of legwork up front. 99% of the people in the US don't know who Wodo is today. In five years, maybe it's 90% don't know. But it's really taking the time to introduce people to the brand and meeting them at the point in their life in which they would try Wodo. So for example, a six-year-old kid who has a gluten allergy could try it for the first time on his menu at school. A dad on the go with three kids or a mom on the go with two kids just needs, just wants that cookie dough snack because she doesn't have time to make cookie dough for her family that she can enjoy with them. So it's really making Wodo synonymous with that on-the-go cookie dough treat for you, your family, and anyone else who just wants that quick indulgence on the go. How do you think about what the future of snack food overall looks like? And, and how do you see Wodo's contributing role to that you know, higher vision? So there's recently uh, an article that I read where it talked about how people are eating less meals and snacking more. So again, it goes back to meeting people where they are. So if people mm-hmm. are snacking more, it's looking at how do you give consumers Wodo in different formats where they can snack on it. So maybe it's a bar for breakfast. Maybe it's a two-pack snack for after dinner. So it's really thinking about, okay, how do people snack? How do people eat cookie dough? And then bringing them together to be there when people want that indulgent trait. Hmm. Building on that a little bit, what does success look like for, for you and, and your business? And, and what ultimately is the impact that you hope to have with Wodo in retrospect? I would say success by the day. So what I mean by that is it's tough to think about long-term successes when you know, every day we reward the small successes we have. 
But you know, long term, I'm not sure if success is selling the business to a larger company who can help accelerate the brand. Which again, you've seen a lot of brands do that, and then the brand becomes just a, a massive like powerhouse. Or is it building something that you can continue to give back to the community, grow your team, create jobs? My boys, right, seven, five, and two, they always say, you know, when they grow up, they want to come to work with their dad. So I haven't determined what that longer term success looks like today. Obviously, everyone wants to build something and sell it, but it could be, you know, building something for the next generation. But today I focus on the daily successes, the weekly successes. It's, it's the things that six or eight months ago seemed like were never going to happen or couldn't happen because we were too small or, you know, it just the challenges seemed too steep. And watching our small but mighty team really kind of overcome them. And, you know, whether that was getting on American Airlines or getting into a new retailer or launching our new product, you know, I really try to award the small successes, knowing that if we execute those, the larger success will come down the line. I'm curious because I, I often hear people talk about, you know, celebrating the small wins along the way, which I completely agree is incredibly important. I am curious what practically that looks like. How do you? How is it that you celebrate the small everyday wins? I, I think it's just you know, there's no big celebration, right? You're not like, oh, let's throw a party. We got a retailer, but it's really you know, telling your deal you know, again when you're a small team. It's it, it, it's it's getting lunch for the team. It's it's telling everyone like, great job today. Like you know, it's really picking people up, right? In the end. People want to feel good about what they're doing. They want to feel like they're part of something. And at Wodo, every person that's on our team is part of building a brand. They're part, they're part of changing the way people are eating cookie dough, whether that's in a bar form or a chocolate chip cookie that gets baked. And they know each of those successes changes the way someone eats cookie dough. What have been the, the biggest lessons you, you had mentioned earlier on the, the the maybe trite but true one of you know you have to have a customer and know who they are, <laughs> but having having run multiple organizations, seen a lot of entrepreneurs go through this cycle, you know, separately from from your own journey, what are, what are some of the the lessons that you've taken with you from those as you've applied them to to Wodo? The number one lesson: there's no such thing as an overnight success. Almost every startup company is five, ten, fifteen, twenty years in the making. And I would challenge anyone to point out one that's different. You know, number two, your team, right? You, you got to have a good team. And age doesn't matter. It's really about having a team that, 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 that really is invested in building your business with you. And they're building it with you. They're not building it for you. Your team is building it with you. And if you're a founder, you've got to be grinding just like your team is. I am at every trade show, almost every trade show. I work almost around the clock. My team knows they can text me day at night. Usually they're the one, usually they put up the do not disturb because <laughs> they're known, it is known that I will text at 11 o'clock at night and three o'clock in the morning. Just because, you know, when, when you're a founder, you can't turn it off, right? You're building something. You have everything on the line. You know, it, it all in the end rests with you. Sometimes that's scary, right? You, know, the, you, you always second guess yourself. Is that flavor good enough? Is that margin strong enough? Am I making the right decision? But in the end, you, know, you make the decision with the information you have in front of you and you do the best you can. And some of it's just out of your control. 
I believe cookie dough will continue to be a fast-growing trend. But again, maybe it won't be. But the grind is real. There are long days. There are long nights. But you have to enjoy it. I think when you stop enjoying it, you probably should stop being an entrepreneur. Yep, that that also resonates quite a lot. (laughs) I I want to circle back to at least an idea that you introduced earlier, which was the decision to bring core competencies back to to Cleveland uh, and the the greater you know Ohio area. Why why Cleveland? You know, outside of the the margin is you know how do you think about that question? Which I, I'm sure you receive qu- quite a lot. Yeah, so you know, to me, it was it was really it was I want to say that, I don't want to say it was an easy decision, but it was an easy decision. So California, right? I don't live in California. It's a, it's a time change. It's a plane ride away. It doesn't support my local economy. So, so, so really when making that decision, one of the key factors was I'm moving my manufacturing back to Ohio where I am, where I've grew up, where I'm raising my family. And I know that as I grow my business and I can manufacture more bars, I can employ more people. Going back to why I started Launch House was creating a community for entrepreneurs to start and grow their businesses and ultimately have an impact here in Northeastern Ohio. For Wodo, bringing manufacturing, keeping our fulfillment in Ohio. Because again, as we grow, the jobs will grow and we're keeping it all here. Entrepreneurship is the foundation of every community. And to me, it was kind of going back to you know my roots. Being able to, when we have a production run, go to the manufacturing facility, go to our fulfillment center. And really just you know, continue to make that local impact. Having gone back to your roots and subsequently you know, doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down on this you know, investment in Northeast Ohio, uh, both building your own company with Wodo and, and supporting others through, through Launch House, what is your sentiment you know, on the, the pessimism, optimism spectrum for what, what comes next for the community? I'm always optimistic, right? And probably to a fault. I think that COVID has hit our entrepreneurial community really tough in the sense that there used to be a lot of avenues for upstart entrepreneurs. And I think that has really dwindled. I think long-term it will come back, but it'll just take time. And I think really for Northeastern Ohio, we have to focus on what we're good at. We need to stop trying to be everything to everyone. I've been in it you know, since 2007 in the entrepreneurial space. And you know, every three or five years, there's some new, hot, sexy thing that we try to chase instead of just focusing in on what we're really good at. I mean, we have two of the best hospital systems in the country. You've got unbelievable innovation coming out of there, right? You know this, right? I, I mean, you know, if we just went all in on medical, and I think we're also really good at manufacturing uh, just across the board. I mean, look at some of the great food companies you have in Cleveland, right? You have Cleveland Kitchen. You've got Smuckers. You've got a big R&D facility for Nestle here. I mean, you know, if we just focused on medical and food and manufacturing, like think about what, what was Cleveland built around? Manufacturing. Why are we trying to be a, you name it. You've been around seven years. You've seen it all like I have, right? Yeah. We try to be everything to everyone. Just focus on building a supportive entrepreneurial community where we embrace people even if they fail, right? It's okay to fail. Most entrepreneurs don't succeed the first time. It's a fact. 
So embrace entrepreneurs, provide capital at the earliest stage to help them build their minimal viable product. If they fail, pick their asses up and help them keep going. And I think that's really probably the biggest takeaway I'd have on Northeastern Ohio until we start accepting entrepreneurs at all ages, all phases, and really appreciate the fact that it's okay to fail. We're not going to get there. And we got to lead by examples. Entrepreneurs need to lead entrepreneurial communities. If you look at all the successful ecosystems across the country and across the world, who are they led by? The entrepreneurs. <laughs> right? It, it's simple. Give them the tools to lead the community. And once that happens, you'll see things change. I, I want to leave a little space for, for you to unpack anything further that you think is, is particularly important as part of your, your own journey or reflections on you know, the, the ecosystem at large. That we, that we haven't necessarily talked about yet. Yeah, I would say from an overall ecosystem standpoint, I always continue to be optimistic that we will be, that we'll continue to seed and grow successful entrepreneurs in Northeastern Ohio. From a, a WODO standpoint, it's really stay tuned. I mean, the, the, the story is still being written. And of all people, I've been around, you know, 90% of entrepreneurs fail, right? 1% produce a return, the other 9% break even. And so, you know, I recognize how tough it is. It's not for the faint at heart. And I look forward to continue on this journey. And, you know, I hope to be a success story one day. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your story and for, 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 for sharing Wodo. I, I, I have had the product many times and it, it is delicious. And I, I do recommend that anyone listening in give it a give it a try, but just want to thank you, Todd. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, hear my story, all myself, my family, my journey with Wodo, you know, launch house. And I would say, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message and I'll send you a coupon and some product to try so you can enjoy it yourself. Just connect with me on LinkedIn and just say, Hey, I heard, the, you know, just put in the subject, lay of the land and uh, just uh, I'll connect with you and I will uh, send you some products. Amazing. So we'll, we'll close with uh, our traditional closing question, which is for a hidden gem in, in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, something that other folks may not know about. Lake Farm Park. It's where I spend a lot of weekends with my kids. That's perfect. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you as well. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.